Hello and welcome to Don't Shoot the Deputies, a podcast run by two deputies who are normally on opposite sides of the country. But I'm really pleased to say that today, through an absolute wonder of the universe, I've ended up back down in Ken with my good friend Steve and we're here together, aren't we Steve? Hello everyone, yes, here together back in the lovely fields of Kent. <laughs> that sounds a bit weird, in the fields of Kent. <laughs> People got an image of us just lying backwards with a meadow around Lavender us. around us. Yeah, yes. beautiful. Well, I'm down seeing my family who are based in Essex and I thought I'd nip in and see my good friend because he does miss me once in a while. And um, We thought we'd have a quick catch up and a bit of a chat. So this podcast uh, will cover a few serious bits, but really it is a good chance for me and Steve just to have a natter. We've just had a massive lunch with a baguette and crisps and cookies and donuts so we're kind of in that food coma mode at the moment aren't we? <laughs> already drifting off <laughs> so um so yeah so we're just going to have a bit of a chat about a, f- a few things and um, i put out a poll on twitter about some options that we could talk about the announcement from jeremy corbyn about scrapping sats um if labor get in in the future also um moral compasses in leadership and also kind of teamwork in leadership and they've all had a similar kind of vote so we'll have a quick natter about all of those uh, we'll start with the the Jeremy Corbyn announcement, which I know in some senses really united a lot of people around a few things, um, but really divided us educators on other things. So, I don't know, Steve, what were some of the thoughts that came to mind for you about that announcement? Well, I'm normally quite opinionated, but I have to say I'm sitting on the fence with this one until we know the alternative. Hmm. It's very easy to get rid of SATs, and I think a lot of us as teachers agree that they're not always the best form of assessment and it would be nice to have less pressure on our children when they're leaving school, um, even from four-year-olds, seven-year-olds, year four and then year six. But we need to have a very good um, alternative for it to be effective because mm. for me, thinking if it was, say, teacher judgment, I can't see how that would help our workload. Knowing how we moderate writing and assess writing at the moment, would that help to have to do that for reading and maths? Mm. I think as well as the workload, the bit that worries me about if if it if the alternative was more about teacher assessment was the reliability. And it's a lot of people said, well, we need to trust teachers more. I don't actually think it's necessarily about not trusting them. It's about recognising that we all have biases when we assess. We see that with writing moderation is still a massive problem in terms of consistency and fairness. And I'd I'd be very worried about interpretations of criteria. Yeah, subjective, the objective. Um... And when you're moderating writing, it can be quite difficult sometimes to be objective when you know the children. Mm. And not only that, it's people before you as well. Everyone, I think, who's been in year six has looked back at a child and gone, were they really expected or greater depth for the end of Key Stage 1? Yeah. Um, I don't see how this can solve that difficulty if it was going to teach judgment only. No. I mean, the other bit that's fascinated me has been about... Um, whether this the, the real issue is the SATs themselves or kind of the high stakes associated with it. And I put a, a poll out on Twitter, which, all right, it doesn't give people the option to kind of select both as the biggest problem, but people by far, almost 2,000 people voted and very clearly said, I think it's about 93, 94% of you said that the biggest issue were the high stakes associated um, with, with SATs rather than the tests themselves, the biggest problem. But others have argued that they're inseparable and that you couldn't have SATs without high stakes. What do you think about that? Do you think we could have a culture where you could still have testing at year six but not the accountability levels that we do? I'm torn. I think actually the testing and accountability do go hand in hand. Mm. However, it would be a huge culture shift for education for us to actually end up at a situation when we are testing the children, but what are we testing them for? 
without there being a link to accountability for what we're doing it for. Because the SATs are very much for the school instead of the children, aren't they? And I think yeah. a lot of people can lose sight of that. And the pressures we put the children on, I hate mentioning SATs, SATs and SATs mm. for our year six children. You can see the, um, not all children, some children rightly do not feel that pressure, but there mm. is pressure that's imparted on the children. And it all stems from the accountability from above and it's a trickling down effect and we need to we're good at teachers of trying to reduce that for children but mm. at the same point can we do testing when we're not linking it to accountability i don't know yet well accountability is a funny one isn't it because mm. i actually think schools should be accountable i mm. think it would terrify me if we had a system where schools weren't held to account and i think it's very idealistic to assume that every teacher in school in the country is doing things right and we need to leave them alone i don't think that would be right i think we do need to be held to account. I've worked in a, a range of schools and some of which actually having some tough sats results has been the kick we've needed to realise that things, it's a symptom, isn't it? That's one of the symptoms that things aren't quite right sometimes. Um, so I think accountability is right, but it's about the balance because we, it's swung far too, too strongly the other way. We've got great heads and teachers leaving the profession who should be with us and they have had enough and they are exhausted and stressed and that that can't be right so i i'd like to believe there's a way of getting back to a culture where accountability is not at this level um in terms of the pressure we put on children i mean that raised a whole nother moral debate really on twitter because i, I had teachers sort of saying well it's still our choice uh, i think michael tid made the point that you know Schools still have a choice about what they put children through and, and, and how they kind of make them feel during the SATs period where others felt, well, no, it's we're forced to do this. We're forced to behave in this way or put this pressure on children. I mean, and I'd like to also throw in the view of Andrew Percival, who said sometimes when we're doing all these extras in year six that put the pressure on children, isn't that just a reflection that we've been getting things wrong over the long term? And I think that was a very reasoned response. Uh, I think if we're throwing everything at year six and those kids are feeling that pressure, we have to reflect and say, well, what have we done wrong that means we're leaving it all to the last minute? <clears throat> yeah, and I haven't been in year six. I think one of the things I've noticed is <clears throat> you drive so much towards the sats and um, getting the best out of the children, keeping them calm, keeping them pressure off on that premise that, oh, don't worry, after the SATs, we do some more fun fun activities, fun things, and your end of transition from primary school to secondary school can be more fun after the SATs. Is that the right journey that we're taking for our children? Mm. Uh, do we want them seeing that as, uh, okay, I get some rewards for some really hard work, but the pressure's on then, particularly for those who go through 11 plus beforehand in September, they've had a summer beforehand possibly of tutoring, um, and you can see the tiredness on the children by the time they mm. get to this Easter break, they all definitely need an Easter break. And then it's like some of you might need to revise, or some parents may see it as an opportunity to get some extra revision because their children, from external pressures, might want to perform well, get uh, expected greater depth, whatever it is. And <clears throat> it's all leading to this end of the road where they can then be rewarded for some hard work. Mm. And um, it doesn't sit comfortably with me uh, as a year six teacher. In the letters that go home from schools, I've seen them applied over the internet every year. Uh, the SATs don't tell you everything you need to know about a child. Mm. And I, judge. I like it, but at the same point, 
are we then saying that the reason you need to send this letter out is purely because they're tested so yeah. much? And I think strain on them. I think it's a great point that that phrase that you know we've all we've all talked about of, of, of you know these don't test everything about the child. Well, they're not mm. meant to. No. They're not meant to. They're meant to test. Are they at a certain standard in English and maths? But I think the reason heads have got to a position where they feel like they need to send letters like that is because we've spent so much talk, time talking about the English and the maths and testing them on it that we feel guilty and we feel we have to remind. Um, parents that we do care about the, the, the wider kind of life of the child uh, where if the stakes were so much lower that the tests were just something they did as part of year six and you know it wasn't that big a deal because we taught them brilliantly every year we'd really got what embedded learning meant and they got to year six you know and the year six teachers could just put icing on the cake which year six teachers should be then they would just they would just attack those tests with a lot more ease I believe I don't think it is in itself testing that is evil. I think testing is is something that we we do in class. We you know we talk about low stakes quizzing and testing a lot at the moment as a great um, way of checking understanding. Um, tests don't have to be an evil thing, but at the moment they're associated with people's careers and jobs and performance related pay, and it's just not right, and it, it's causing so much harm to the profession. So I think what I got out of Twitter and Facebook yesterday, Steve, is that people are united in their belief that the system in terms of accountability needs to change, but there's real division over whether that means SATs need to go. I, I mean, I heard some really reasoned responses about perhaps some reform to the assessments themselves. Um, you know, we were talking earlier, weren't we, about like the SPAG test is fairly universally disliked. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, one teacher suggesting perhaps popping that in another year group and slimming it down, uh, maybe into year five so that year six teachers can focus more on the maths and the reading. I did a poll, um, was that yesterday or today, that basically said, you know, which of the tests do you think are best reflecting children's understanding? Maths came out by far top. So I think people on the whole think maths is a better reflector of or indicator of children's knowledge and understanding, although a few people a bit concerned that it's a bit of a reading test as well. But, you know, could the maths be slimmed a little bit, make it the arithmetic, maybe one reason paper? One reason paper, one arithmetic paper. Um, and, and then look at whether the English side of things... I mean, the reading's an interesting debate. I mean, there's good evidence out there that reading is, you know, comprehension is much about their knowledge of the world as possible. And I know I went to a conference by the STA a couple of years ago where they were saying when we design the reading test, we really try and find things that are universally um, relevant or interesting to all children, which really made us giggle because there have been some shockers on the test <laughs> in the past. I don't know how caving and I think 2011 was a universally uh, kind of recognised thing by 11 year olds around the country. But you how you find something that all children relate to is, is a toughie, isn't it? Yeah, at the end of the day, we all big up about children being individuals and having their own interests, so how we can universally say that this particular area will provide a great insight into their reading skills, that's a tough ask to do. And um, I know the 2016 reading paper was an absolute shocker. <clears throat> Last year, I think, was a little better. Not not massively better, but a little bit better. Mm. But I don't think we'll ever find one test that can properly assess all them children. Not based on just reading skills. There's always going to be knowledge imparted, I feel. Mm. Um, we, we've got a long way to go. And again, this comes back to what Corbyn said about the alternatives. We've got them in place, but until we know what they are, it's very hard to say whether it'll be better. Yeah. 
Yeah, who knows? Let's watch this space. And I just think, you know, feelings got very strong yesterday. Let's not lose sleep over this one. But let's keep our eyes very close on the issue. And I think whatever your political stance, I think, one, let's all have an open mind. But let's all be critical, even if you're supportive of, of, of what Corbyn's talking about. Because I think we've had so many changes to assessment and to education. We have to look at anything that's another change with caution. I've been an assessment lead right through the years since Life Without Levels. And the workload has been unreal linked to that in terms of being able to um, prepare for the changes and being able to prepare for new assessments. And I would be very cautious about any change unless I knew the alternative really did um, offer something strong. But I think we definitely need to look at the high stakes nature of things. I know Ofsted are talking more about the wider curriculum in terms of future inspections, but um, the devil will be in the detail when that really comes into practice, won't it? Yeah, in the day, Ofsted will always be majorly concerned with our results and I think that's the crux of it it's not necessarily the sats in themselves it's who are we doing them for and what are we doing with the data from them if mm. we're using it for beating us all down and accountability yes there has to be a level of accountability but that's what we're really opposing against the accountability that comes with these sat tests at yeah. key stage one at key stage two yeah and people there's few people suggesting some quite interesting alternatives to um, how that year six data could be used like three year averages for the co you know for the school so that it was a bit more balanced if you had a particularly amazing or particularly low year that's not throwing the kind of story about that school too much but hey let, let's keep talking about it and seeing what's um, put forward by educators and I just hope some key people from the profession that know their stuff are listened to and, and those from a wide range of backgrounds and viewpoints Anyway, before that gets too political and we get into all that, let's move it on. Um, what about this idea of a moral compass in leadership? So it did raise the issue, as I said, of whether the pressures put upon us, do they force us to act in a way that um, we don't want to? Or does it remain the kind of responsibility of the leader or the teacher to deliver an education in a way that they believe is right? Can we be forced to act in a way we don't want to, Steve? What do you reckon? I think we have to say there's an element of yes there straight away because we can't have so many people leaving our profession within two to five years without feeling that their moral compass has been shifted somewhat. And the reason why they're leaving the profession is purely down to the external pressures and internal ones that put on everybody, but also that it's not the job that they signed up for. Right. Everyone joins teaching with this view of having an amazing class, doing everything, fun activities and uh, lifelong learners but at the end of the day it boils down to an element of I didn't expect to be doing this day in day out and they are doing it day in day out so has the moral compass been skewed so what so much from above or internally that they feel that they there's no other option now but to leave the profession I've seen loads of TS articles at the moment particularly popping up on Facebook all the negativity of teaching over this Easter period and you feel is that because at the moment this is a high, high demand for teachers leaving the profession due to their moral compass being shifted? I don't know. Mm. It's a hard one and it's, it's that thing about where that moral compass comes from because it's not one person, it's a culture of a whole organisation. If you're part of a mat, a whole trust, you know, a CEO. And I, I do think there's an enormous responsibility on leaders here in terms of modelling it, you know, in being almost giving their staff, particularly impressionable younger teachers who, don't get me wrong, it's not that your moral compass is any less strong when you're 23 versus 43, <laughs> but 
if you come into the job and you come into a culture, you're going to assume that the culture you walk into is normal. And I know there are teachers that have entered the profession into schools where it just didn't feel right. Um, and perhaps they have compromised what they thought was okay um, in terms of the way they um, taught, the way they assessed, the way they administered SATs, for example. Um, but that's got to come from the leaders above. And if you're in a culture where leaders really hold on to what they feel is right then that's got to allow those beneath them so to speak to to flourish i mean i'm working for a head now who's really got her moral compass in intact really cares deeply about her principles and i know that's the one thing that she wouldn't let go in her job and that means a lot to me as her deputy to feel that that's the kind of school we're running um what do you think do you think that's it's about the leaders i think it is about leaders and it's having that autonomy for other people to yeah these are our this our principles and this direction we want to travel but also giving freedom to to the staff to have their own say in how we are directing this so if we have a moral compass that's very strong in uh in this principled approach then i think that will definitely reflect on the staff around you and again then it touched on to every other layer like well-being as well everyone's working together for the same thing and there's a much more principled approach to what we're doing as an educator. Do you think part of it, because from my point of view, I think part of it is about people believing that it's possible to be really successful in terms of results and stuff and still hold on to that moral compass. I've been yeah. given the impression by certain people I've come across in the past in my career that the only way you can get those results is by having to be dishonest or being, um, you know, smashing year test, sixes yeah. with teaching to the test and you know what was great about that visit to to chris dyson school up in leeds in my last mm -hmm. podcast was they have proved that you can get there with your moral compass intact and through a, a culture of nurture and that's really lifted me as a leader because it's given me that belief that i can i can do it that way <clears throat> yeah and i think i've only been at one school and um you don't want to lose track of the fact that nurture and love is actually vitally important to getting the results that you want and it shouldn't all be focused on getting them results but it's about providing children with a fantastic education and um, you've worked at many other schools Russell so you have a much more rounded view of mm. where this all kind of pieces together but mm. yeah I do feel there's a element to be said about the moral compass being so strong and having the values associated with what you want and then it will rub off on everyone else and really pull together and give the children what they deserve. Do you remember when we did the podcast with Stu and um, Stu mm. Newbury in our second podcast on well-being? He talked about this and he talked about this from not being in an education background, but he talked about, you know, starting from the point of of what you th think was right, kind of and setting that lay in the table so to speak and then and then and and, and results will follow and I remember listening to it at the time and thinking, I really want to believe you, this sounds great. <laughs> and then it wasn't long after that I saw Chris Dyson school and thought, bloody hell, he was right. You know, it, you actually can do it this way. It's just, it just depends on your approach. It's having the boldness and the confidence and the other leaders alongside you that are, are, are in touch with their principles to say, and you know what, we're going to do it the right way here. Yeah. We're going to get the results the right way. And actually that's a long-term game a lot of um the biggest problems for me in education are that kind of short termism that we're gonna just ram it home in year six and we'll keep doing that every year and that is exhausting and i hear from so many year six teachers or have done um since talk about this sats thing who are just like they're just so fed up with being the people that have to try and work miracles in the last minute it's not the way we should be running a school <clears> is it no and no, i remember when joining this school and talking to other schools locally 
the acceptance that after year two, oh, there's always a slump in year three, the children slow down in year three and four, and then they pick it up again with amazing teaching and fun. That's not how it should no. be. You go from the roots up all the time, and you want every year to be a sterling year for them children to learn and progress. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think, you know, throw into that, because someone was sort of saying to me, yeah, but we've had years to get it right. Why are your six teachers still having to do it all last minute? And I think part of that is our understanding of what learning and long-term learning is. And I feel like there's a lot out there at the moment that's exciting and work from Claire Seeley and others who are getting us to really understand what long-term learning means. And, you know, there's that same argument of, God, I've taught this in year five. Why didn't they get it up in year six? And it's because... Perhaps the teaching looked okay and was engaging, but it wasn't based on our understanding of how memory works, where we're getting some great guidance out there at the moment around cognitive science and how we can use some of those strategies in our class to help children to deeply memorise stuff. And I think it comes hand in hand with all the stuff on maths mastery and, you know, really nailing the kind of automaticity, the fluency skills so that children get up to that top end, actually being able to tackle, well, do the icing on the cake stuff in year six and actually then why would they be pressured and scared if teachers were calm and knew that they didn't have to perform miracles in the last six months of schooling? It would be a better way to be anyway, in my, in my mind. Should we finish by, because um, we're going to have quite a, a, a short podcast today, just around 25 minutes, so we'll just finish by having a quick chat about what it means to have kind of teamwork in leadership. So I, I put this out as an option on the poll because I was coming to see Steve and I thought about how much we enjoyed working as a team when we were a couple of leaders working together as middle leaders and assistant heads. What do you think it means, Steve, to have others around you in, in, in the job that you connect well with and get on well with? I think similarly to in the classroom, when we look at children, we think how the relationships children have with each other, with their teacher, <laughs> that's when you drive the best out of each other. And I know... I've worked with some fantastic people in the last nine years. Um, when you have such relationships where you can be honest, um, you can share um, practice with each other, you can always look to develop. And when you can sit in a room with someone for a short space of time, but your vision is so deeply linked to mm. the school vision that you can sit there, you can really nail home what you want to get out of something. I remember out from our monitoring days uh, working together, what we were looking at it was so clear and we then resonated that to the start that it was a very open practice mm. it wasn't for accountability and judgmental it's just a look at how we can develop constantly as a school when you're working so closely as a team uh, and then that team can in the leadership cycle can then spread out beyond to the middle leaders uh, phase leaders and to the whole staff mm. that's where you get the best results by a long way and Absolutely. you just need to have that confidence and drive from working in small cluster teams to then bringing it into a whole school vision mm. and involving the children, the other stakeholders, the governors, the parents. Mm. It's everyone being on the same pace. They're the, they're the schools that flourish. Yeah. I've no doubt that Parklands is one of those schools. Yeah. So when you can think about everyone is on that same pace to progress, to develop and to achieve and have their high expectations that are translucent across every every part of the school, that's when you do best. For sure, absolutely. And I think, you know, I really relate to everything you've said. If I think back to anything I've ever achieved that I'm proud of in a school, it's been with other people. And it's exciting. I love that about the job. And I just really encourage people, particularly in the season where people are looking for new jobs, if you're thinking about a move, yes, look at the lovely building. Yes, look at whether you get a buzz when you walk in and the children. But really try and talk to people as you walk around. Because, you know, I've telling Steve earlier when we were chatting and catching up and I'm in the fourth school I've worked in and I've had brilliant moments and relationships in all the schools I've worked in 
but what I really love about where I work now is just how many people in the team I really have a, a connection with that helps me to do my job well and I couldn't do it without them you know whether that's middle leaders whether that's teachers right across the phases who just get what I'm trying to do and um, help me get there and when I went for interview, I was very lucky that I managed to talk to some of these people and I just knew I wanted to work with them. There was something about their charisma, about their can-do attitude, about their values that came through in the way they talked about children. I just thought, this is the team. These are the people I want to get alongside. And you're very lucky if you're in a school at the right time when lots of key characters <laughs> are all there peaking at the same time. You know, it's not always easy in schools to have that. You know, you have people come and go and maternity leaves and all sorts. If you're in a position where you just see a few people and you think, oh, I can really connect with them, just really encourage you to go for those kind of jobs where you get those vibes where there are people you can just see yourself connecting with because you're going to make magic happen with those people. <clears throat> Before we go, Russell, just thinking hmm. ahead, we've got a lot of um, university students and in our group, uh, I'm thinking about Christchurch, Canterbury, a lot of people there yeah. who are now coming to the end of their university time, they're looking around schools and jobs. What would you look for initially on that first tour? How would you get a good feel for a school? Yes, you do your background research, look at the website. Any three, top three things that you look for when you're walking around a school? Wow. I on think, the spot. Yeah, <laughs> really on the spot. Well, I got given a great bit of advice for when I was looking to be a deputy, which I'd say is great for whatever level of job you're going for, which is... If you're taken around by the head teacher, look at how children respond to them. So uh, my current head, when I walked into classes with her, they wanted to come and give her a hug and stuff. And that was the kind of head I wanted to work for, someone that the children adored and who adored the children. So decide in your head, well, how do I want the children to respond to the leader of that school? And, and look as you're on a tour of how do they interact with the children? How do the children respond to them? Is it respectful? Is it warm? Is it loving? Whatever matters to you. So that would be my top one. Um, I would look at I would I would advise you not to be purely put off or encouraged by an Ofsted grading so the first school I ever worked in was a bit in the deep end it was a, a notice to improve when I actually went for the interview and it had actually gone into special measures by my first day which is a, a rare thing to have in your first job but it was a brilliant place to start my career I was given quite a lot of support and training and I met some amazing people and I grew really quickly there it wasn't easy but don't be put off by an Ofsted grading look at um where the school's at now and where it could go in the future. And again, you know, look at the people in the building. Are they people that you can see are going to take it somewhere new? Um, third one, anything creeping up for you, Steve? If you can get a tour when the children are there, they're so telling. And if you mm. can have a quiet word with a few of the children, just say, uh, how do you like school? What's your views on the class, school? You get a lot out of that. But for me, I look at the environment overall. And if I'm there at the end of the day, I'll have a look at what the parents are like when they arrive to pick up their children. Yeah. So I think what you're looking for is a united front and high expectations. Because if there are high expectations that exist, you should be going into a good support package. Yeah. Firstly. And if you can talk to any staff on your tour, be it teachers, TAs, office staff, they'll always give you an, a nice view of mm. what you're walking into. And with that third point you've made there about the environment, the relationships, etc., your gut's going to kick in there and you will know intuitively if it feels right or not. And, you know, your first school doesn't have to be the perfect package. It's your first experience. You'll grow loads there. But just look at how you feel. You know, I've, I've, every school visit I've ever made, I've just had a, quite a strong sense of whether I felt that was somewhere I wanted to walk into each day or whether it just felt a bit wrong. And I've had tours where... On paper, I really wanted to love the school, but I just didn't feel right. Yeah. 
and websites can do the same. You can look at a website and think, oh, maybe that's not the school for me, but still go and have a talk. Mm-hmm. It's always worth just going and have a look in the flesh and thinking, all right, so the website didn't reflect uh, the values and the ethos that I'm actually feeling mm-hmm. in this bit. And then you can decide to apply for it. Don't just rule something out because you're not particularly impressed online. Um, always see the tour and get a feel for where you're walking into. Do you want to work there for one, two, three years before moving on? Brilliant. I think that's some good advice, Steve. So we'll wrap up there. But just to say, you know, it's so nice to sit here with my friend who I haven't seen for over a year. And we started this in August just as a bit of fun on the side to still talk about education and to both grow as leaders in another kind of format through the internet. And it's just really nice to see how far this has grown with the podcast, the Twitter page, our Facebook group, Make an Impact Education. So just a big thank you if you've supported us and connected with us and talked to us. And if there's anything in the future you think, I'd really like you guys to talk about this, please let us know. And next time it will be back over the uh, dodgy internet connection we always have, Steve, when we try and talk (laughs) online. But a big thank you. And uh, yeah, we'll speak to you guys soon. Have a lovely break, everyone. Enjoy the rest of your rest. Bye-bye. Don't keep the deputy.